Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. Uh, my name is Ted Flanagan. I am your host. And today we're going to be speaking with Russell Sturm. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine. He's had a fascinating career with en energy efficiency, working from different angles we'll be talking about. And now he's mentoring uh, students at a number of universities. And so I'm just delighted to have Russ on the show today. Hey, Russ, how are you doing today? I'm great, Ted. It's great to be with you. Good to see you. And I, are you in your home office in Bethesda as we speak? That is what I. That is where I am. Very good. Very. It's good. a sunny, cold winter day. Uh, the seasons, the seasons upon us. Big time. Yes, I see that in the news. And I, and I just and I just got back from uh, visiting my son in Uganda, and there it's you know equatorial, so it's wet or dry season. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everything adapts to that agriculture, life rhythms, the whole bit, but in a completely different yeah. way than seeing the leaves leave your trees. Right. Hey, let's go, let's go way back in, in your life. We'll just quickly, uh, born and raised where? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia and, uh, my dad was a doctor and I had sort of a comfortable life. And I think, uh, the seeds of a, a notion of, Having been born into privilege has informed, and it's and it started informing at a pretty young age this notion that I kind of won the sperm lottery, and yeah. there's sort of a there's sort of a responsibility that goes with it, and um, and I'd also was exposed to some really wealthy people in those moments, and generally was not real impressed that it's a difficult thing to accomplish that, and um, that that is something one could do. Uh, but there's a bigger sense of purpose that sort of motivated how I focused the rest of my life. So, so how did that, how did that yeah. manifest? How did that, when you went to college, how did you, yeah. how did how did that direct I, your experience? I, I, I went to the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so big university, a lot of resources. And it was just like a smorgasbord salad for me, salad bar. Um, and I was nibbling a bit on a disc, bit of that wasn't getting any direction. After two years, I took a semester off from school to figure out what I wanted to focus on, like what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, and the fundamental um, uh, uh, tension there for me was whether to focus on things that impact individuals. And I looked into being a psychoanalyst, like a therapist. Mm -hmm. And, um, or I had through the, through the course of my studies up to that point, I became increasingly aware of existential environmental challenges and, and and also kind of society evolving in some troubling ways around concentration of wealth, um, inequities, um, apartheid was going on in South Africa. Um, that was sort of that and nuclear were the two kind of organizing uh, motivators um, politically uh, that was going on in the background in the college environment. And was influencing me and so um i took a semester off and i worked for a developmental psychologist i ran a small business um and worked for political scientists and and decided coming out of that that um this is also when the second oil shock was hitting yep. so you could see this profound transfer of wealth into the opec countries um and concentrated at the very high end of those societies Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I realized in the context of seeing these environmental, um, these existentially challenging environmental problems, ozone depletion was happening. 
Um, there was a theory about climate change that I heard about for five minutes in one course, um, but it certainly wasn't a, a yeah. generally accepted concern. But nuclear power was, and they were opening a, a four or 500 um, megawatt unit uh, Sharon Harris nuclear plant, or were planning it just down the road yeah. uh, outside Chapel Hill. And that became an organizer for me and uh, some other students I became close to and have been close to since then, Greg Katz being one of them. And yeah. we got politically involved there. And I decided that energy, the decisions we were going to make around energy were going to influence everything I cared about. You know, yep. um, uh, wealth allocation, economic development, certainly yep. the environment, and what kind of life we would lead. And, and so there was a lot of a lot of actually my contemporaries at college had become some real uh, movers in the in the field of energy and energy efficiency coming out of that period. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if we influenced each other. There was a couple of influential professors, um, and uh, so I decided to learn everything I could from a multidisciplinary perspective about yep. energy. And um, I was able to do that because I had by accident fulfilled the course, the, the, the major requirements for a public policy major just by accident of what I did the first two years. So I was able to just take everything at Duke, NC State, UNC around uh, engineering, planning, um, um, uh, economics, um, finance that influence yeah. energy. And so, and so when it came time to leave school, um, I'd done an honors thesis um, that was looking at the misguided efforts of municipal utilities and, mm. um, and, and rural co-ops to use their bonding capacity to finance the mistakes that the investor-owned utility, Duke Power and Carolina Power and Light, were making in committing to building big on nuclear. Wasn't cost-effective. Um, yep. uh, super risky, um, and what they had done is wind and dine these public utility officials from little towns, put them on the private plane that the Duke CEO um, owned, <laughs> took them on hunting trips, and had them use their bonding power to get them cheaper money. Uh, interest rates were like 15 16%. And they were going into capital intensive investments. So, so um, my honors thesis looked at the uh, how well thought out those decisions were and looked at whether they could use energy efficiency as an investment um, yep. Yep. Uh, focus to address their energy issues. What is the relative cost of saving versus using and building new capacity? Interesting foundations. And and then did you go directly to the Kennedy School at Harvard after that or after backpacking in South America for a bit? Um, <laughs> and and then and then yeah. So I, I chose my grad school based on who was at these places that had influenced my thinking. Yeah. And so um uh Carnegie Mellon, um uh Berkeley or program, Michigan, Wisconsin, and the Kennedy School because um they'd just done the energy futures study. Yep. And Daniel Jurgen was at yep. the business school. And that to me provided sort of a very practical, sort of like what Amory was doing at the time, uh, Amory Levins, where he was sort of laying out just very practically why energy efficiency was smart. 
Yeah. And, and, and but but they were doing it with the imprimatur of the Harvard Business School and and speaking corporate language. And yep. I was starting to think in very practical terms. You know, we'd yeah. done a lot of stuff in Chapel Hill around, you know, workshops for how you did do bread box solar collectors and this sort of thing. And that felt great. Yeah. But I realized that the scale of the problem required engagement yeah. of very large institutions engagement of policymakers in order to really create fundamental change. And so I went to Harvard. I, I right. sold I sold that part of my soul for the moment to, to get that credential and understand that world. Oh, I think it's incredibly valuable. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did. And it's just set you up for these things I want to talk about. You you I mean, you really had three different careers you've had so far. And now it's a fourth with your, with your teaching. But you started out in the ESCO world, so, and that was early. Wasn't that the early day of performance contract? Yeah, yeah, were... yeah, yeah. That was time, energy was the big one, and yeah. and um, but it was I, I, when I was in grad school. I spent the summer between the two years working in a Washington law firm, drawing up the first contracts for, for performance contracting, and this was the notion that everywhere there are dollar bills on the ground that are getting picked up. You know, the economist said that wouldn't exist, but in fact it was. People were not investing in energy efficiency. They put money in a bank account and earned 5%, but wouldn't put money in a compact fluorescent and earn 20%. And so right. there, was, there was market dysfunction. And the idea behind an energy service company using performance contracting is that, okay, you building owner won't invest in it. Let me make you a proposal. I will invest in the improvements in your building and we will share the savings that come out of it. And I, as a company, have the technical expertise to identify the opportunities, the project management expertise to implement them, and the financing expertise to go out to the market, raise money to capitalize these investments. And so we did a series of, we started that business in upstate New York. Um, doing projects all along the East Coast is called Energy Management Services. And um, I was a 24-year-old co-owner entrepreneur and um, with a lot to learn in a very difficult business. Was um, it mostly light, mostly lighting or did you get into No, no we did small coach and package coach and we did, okay. we did energy management systems. We did lighting. Um, we did whatever motivated the customer. In some cases, you know, it was a municipal garage, municipal buildings in New Jersey, and they needed new garage doors for their garbage truck, you know, uh, garage. And yeah, having a door in there is going to save energy, but we use that as sort of a Trojan horse to get into the project and did everything else. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so uh, then you went to IIEC. Uh, International Institute for Energy Conservation, which is where I think we first crossed paths. That's right. That's right. Um, and IIEC was developed by Rob Pratt and others, and and created offices all over, mm-hmm. all, all created offices all over the world. And uh, how would you characterize your time? You became the president. I, yeah, I, I did. Very... I did. So, so um, I came across. Uh, so, so I seven years running the ESCO, my learning curve had flattened out. You know, year four, I said, well, I got to learn something more. So we got into gas trading. Year five, I said, I have to learn some, just something to keep me on my toes. And, and I had a more senior partner who was kind of directing things. And, and we had different styles. And it was time after seven years. I'd learned a lot. We weren't getting rich. It's a very challenging business. Interest rates were double digits. 
Um, and uh, so I got approached by this group and, and the idea um, of taking what we've learned domestically to apply it as a development tool, energy yeah. efficiency as a development tool in developing countries was compelling. And the first project I had there was basically um, the Montreal Protocol, which just took an, taken effect. Countries had to transition away from ozone depleting um, um, materials and, and chemicals. And so it was affecting things like air conditioning, refrigeration. Yeah. India had to come into compliance, which meant they had to retool and redesign the refrigerator um, uh, industry. There's seven primary producers of refrigerators they're big corporates and so we saw it as an opportunity to in retooling for non-ozone depleting substances to redesign for energy efficiency too and um because of the golden carrot uh in the us and right, right. some some um epa uh labeling things were driving to more efficient refrigerators in the us and so there was technology that could be deployed and so that was my first project there. And, and um, what I found is that uh, the international um, opportunities were, of course, immense. Instead of retrofitting, very often what you're doing is laying a more efficient, more competitive infrastructure in place that allows a country to actually grow. So it's a kind of a different mindset um, with different challenges. And after four years, um, the organization was kind of going through growing pains and the founder, CEO, um, was kind of at odds with the board, the board wanted more, and they asked me to step in in an acting role as president. And what I did as a program person was say, what would I want management to do that allows me to be more effective as a program person? And I just did it. I was 30. And um, and what happened was we went from 21 to 72 people and three offices to seven offices in the course of about two years. And we're starting to have some real substantial impacts. Um, but also what happened was my role had become one of how do you manage seven offices internationally how do you continue to raise more and more money based on $50,000 and $100,000 donations to a nonprofit? How do you get contracts that essentially have you competing with the private sector um, to create the revenue stream to keep you alive and keep your mission focused? And I had three, two young children at the time, and um, I had no energy when I got home. And I was dealing more and more with HR issues, and I wasn't yep. thinking about the things that got me into the into the area that is how do you create change at scale by understanding where the market opportunities are that are not right. being utilized and to mobilize private capital to do those things where they make money but you're actually changing how people live yeah you've got this you've got this grand vision but now you're managing uh, uh, an, an ngo like you said seven offices all over the world that's, that's, a, that's a different deal right it is a different deal. And, and so um, seven years in, um, I was kind of spent and um, wasn't having joy in my yeah. professional life. And, and it was having an uh, after effect of having a very tired Russell 
coming home to <laughs> kids ready to play and a wife ready to hand the hand them over. Yeah. And Michelle's yeah. incredibly supportive my entire career um, and muscled through that, but it wasn't how to live life. And so I gave the board nine months warning nice. and uh, moved on and um, without thinking about what I'd do next. And um, while at IIAC, I had done some contract work for the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector investment arm of the World Bank Group. So same mission, sustainable economic development in developing countries, but instead of your clients being countries, your clients are companies. And the whole thesis is that you create sustainable economic development by building a sustainable um, private sector. And that um, works hand in glove with the World Bank, theoretically, but different cultures, right? It's more of a cowboy culture. It's a bit more attuned to our clients, which is the private sector, whereas the World Bank's orientation is towards governments. And so it's on that sort of time scale. And, um, yeah. So, so no longer did you have to worry about fundraising, I, I gather. That's right. That, so that went that went away. But management, you still you still manage, and you well, still travel a ton, right? I travel a lot. So, 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 um, the difference between going from IAEC to IFC was that I had a business card that gave me this legitimacy. So, you come in as an NGO, and who are you? Uh, you've got a you've got a mission, and you're some young people, and you're bushy tail, you know, and and um, you come in as IFC and you can get meetings with the Minister of Energy and the CEO of a big corporation that, you know, basically controls 10% of the GDP of the country, right? And and you're saying the same things he said before, which is resilience, sustainability, um, energy efficiency, uh, but suddenly they listen and instead of having to struggle to put together a $5 million budget for IIEC every year, uh, at, in October, November, um, the AID equivalents from Germany and Netherlands and Italy, and they're coming through and they're like, what are your ideas? I've got this budget that I need to spend by the end of the year. And, um, and they can think larger because they're a lot more comfortable giving a, a big IFC with a big back office administrative oversight and a strong board, uh, $5 million grant or $10 million grant. We could access the global environment facility. And in my back pocket, what I have is ISC, which invests, um, you know, several billion dollars a year commercially. So I started to think in terms of how do I use this platform? And the work started first around um, getting big chunks of grant money and doing market transformation projects. So inefficient lighting everywhere. This is where you and I started working together, Ted, is you yeah. came in as a consultant to help me design the efficient lighting initiative in, in the Philippines, we were working together. We, the program was in seven countries. And I designed this program as a consultant for the IFC. And when I left IFC, the next day I had lunch with um, my counterpart there and longtime collaborator, Dana Younger mm -hmm. at ISC. And Dana said, well, Russ, why don't you just come and run this program, the, the Efficient Lighting Initiative and um, that you created. And we now have $15 million funding to do work in seven countries. 
And I said, well, I, I want to think about what I do next. I want to be quite deliberate. And I said, I'll be a consultant for three days a week for six months and get this thing back on track. And then I quickly realized what a, what a platform IFC could be um, to, to wreak my havoc on the universe, right? And, and um, so that was the beginning at IFC that became a 20-year career that I left two years ago. And that work evolved from the big programmatic work to then realizing, well, how do I then bring along IFC's multi-billion dollar investment capital? So I started blending the donor money, the grant money, against the commercial IFC investment that then leveraged other private sector investment. So we developed pretty quickly uh, a $2 billion a year energy efficiency business for IFC. Yeah. So essentially, IFC doesn't efficiently do small loans. So how do you do an energy efficiency loan if your minimum is $10 million or $15 million? And the answer is you work through financial intermediaries. You help local banks develop a business in energy efficiency. And you do that by providing technical support to understand the market, help them build capabilities inside, help them create a pipeline, and then bring in the first loss money that allows IFC to give them a bunch of guarantees. Mm -hmm. And then they start to learn the business and then you wean them from it. And so this has had tremendous impact and been replicated at EBRD, EIB, and all these development banks all over the world started taking that model. So what's what, next? Yeah, go ahead. Right, so yeah. What, well, but I know I'm, I'm familiar, familiar with the Efficient Lighting Initiative. I was mm -hmm. working with you on that in the Philippines and that was seven countries. Yeah. South Africa was one. Didn't we have Latvia and Estonia and Chile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, were, there was Central Europe, Central Europe, Asia, and Latin America, Peru, Argentina. And each yeah. in each country, I remember the different strategies to mm -hmm. to move the needle, to transform the market, to leapfrog from. I guess we were going, we were leapfrogging over incandescence in many, many parts of the Philippines and That's going right, right to. CFLs, but they needed to be tested to make sure that the voltage and everything would be okay in those countries. What other countries did you work in when you're at that IFC role? Oh, wow. Um, I, I had different phases, which were different regional phases, but I've worked in, I think, 35 countries or 40 countries over the, over the time. Um, and I, I think the, the unifying thesis of all this is um, what I referred to before, which is these investments make sense. Um, there are entrenched um, um, interests that like the status quo. Yep. And um, they're powerful. And uh, so how do you enable the new young guns, you know, the super efficient technologies, the um, solar technologies to um, start to get a foothold and compete on uh, level playing ground. And my thesis has always been that um, it's market dysfunction. I'm not looking to distort a market by subsidizing something to enable it to compete. Essentially, what you're trying to do is lower is level the playing field by providing people with information, protect them by making sure that new technologies have quality standards so that you don't ruin the market when some bad products get out there and people say these things don't work. Um, and um, and then support um, catalytic capital to allow companies to grow. And that was the case with these market transformation programs. 
It was uh, essentially, it was the case with building a commercial lending market for energy efficiency. I then uh, led IFC's um, climate um, investment advisory work, um, thinking about how do you take these lessons of energy efficiency finance and spread it across modernizing entire economies with um, more resilient technologies but for climate, but then also uh, um, mitigate uh, through lower uh, carbon emissions. And then um, Evan Mills, uh, I saw him give a talk at the Right Light Conference as we were reviewing the results of the Efficient Lighting Initiative. And he turned off the lights in this auditorium and brought it his keychain, which had a little LED light on it. <laughs> and this would have been 2004 or five. Yeah. And, and he said, you know, this thing only uses a tenth of a lot. Imagine how disruptive one could be uh, in a market where we've been trying to use all sorts of financial engineering and subsidies to make solar affordable for people that don't have access to an electric grid. And at that time, Ted, you recall, it was like $800 for a solar system with two compact fluorescent lights, right? Yeah. And a big car battery, a couple eight watt lights, um, and some solar panels that were about one-tenth as efficient as they are today and cost about 100 times more than they do today. Pretty clunky just, stuff. Clunky stuff, right? For yeah, the, yeah. And, and, he and showed he showed that you could just do this in a very spot and very precise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ultra efficient way. Exactly. And, and of course, experience is worth a million words. So everyone's like, oh, yeah, scratching their heads. And then what do you do about yeah. it? Yeah. And, and, and what I was seeing at the same time was Unilever had figured out how to sell shampoo <laughs> into the bottom of the, 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 the income pyramid to people in yeah. India. And they didn't do it by financing an $8 bottle of shampoo. They did it by packaging one rupee sachets like they look like a condom package and and selling it at a price point that the market could afford and and it, and it also highlighted how aspirational people are right so i'll buy that shampoo i want that for my family i just can't give you six dollars for a bottle but i'll give you a rupee and i'll get a shampoo out of it huh. and, and and so the the sort of lessons from big name consumer product companies starting to see how to get things to people that they want but couldn't figure out how to afford, coupled with emergent technology that would be game changer. And how is it a game changer in LED? Well, if you start to think about the lessons of Unilever, how do you package solar lighting at a price point that people can afford? You don't finance a $600 system with a four-year payback. You can downsize the photovoltaic array. You can downsize the battery. And the battery now is no longer a car battery, lead acid, but it's a lithium battery. And, and you just need a few, a few electrons to get useful light. And then you let, you let the market figure out what the form factor is and how much light and how long it lasts. But you protect the market by at least making sure there's truth in advertising. So if someone's selling a solar light with, as a consumer product, and they say, this thing can get charged in four hours and work for six hours, we've tested it and verified that. So as we started to think about how disruptive the notion of LEDs with solar plus a properly sized efficient battery could be, 
then you start opening the door to like $10, $15, even $5 solar lights displacing kerosene lighting. A kerosene lighting is the devil's gift to the universe, right? It's in uh, Evan Mills did some studies about poisoning. They sell the kerosene in um, Coke bottles, uh, deciliter size. And people were leaving them, you know, on the floor, babies opening, kids opening them and drinking it, um, poisonings, uh, indoor air pollution. A lot of my colleagues at ISC had grown up using kerosene lights to study by. And when they heard about my work, they'd come around and they'd talk about their eyes crying and, their, and having respiratory problems. Um, and $10 a week for an hour or two a night of kerosene lighting um, with all these sort of health impacts and yeah. black carbon emissions that are Ugh. great excess from a climate perspective and CO2 plus regular CO2 from combustion. Yeah, an incredible story. And, and um, we could go on and on about your works, at, uh, all your works, but I, I did want to leave just a couple of minutes. We're running a little overtime, but yeah, okay. let's talk about your mentoring now and your courses that you're teaching at, I think, Humboldt and UNC and now University of Virginia. Yeah. You've just decided, okay, you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of experience. Uh, you mentioned you've got, you know, a student body that young, they want us sort of our generation out of the way. That's exactly <laughs> talk right. Talk a little bit about what you're doing there. Yeah. So I kind of, um, I got tired of, uh, you know, I've talked about IFC uh, being a great platform, but it's also, it takes a lot out of you to kind of work a system like that. And I, you know, I, I had that decision point that I think a lot of us do where we're kind of at the top of our game. We have credibility, we can influence, we can move resources. We've learned a lot. Uh, but COVID was a moment to help wake me up to the um, shortness of life um, and how I realized how tired I was. And I wasn't getting re-energized because I couldn't travel. I got all my energy, not from being at the mothership and fighting the bureaucratic battles, but getting in the field and teaching people yeah, yeah. And, and, and building capacity out there. And so I stepped away and I did so with the intention of doing a few things for myself that I hadn't been able to focus on, like music, you know, learning about forestry, the things that kind of light my fire um, internally. Um, but also, I didn't want to just walk away with the goods of learning and experience that I had. And so I was meeting a lot of college kids, um, some of them friends of my kids, some of them sons and daughters of longtime friends that were now seeking me out because they were interested in a life and a career and environment. They wanted to be mentored and advice about what to do. And I realized there's a lot of anger and bitterness towards the, our generation for the gift of uh, climate change and the other kind of existential problems of the moment. Um, and I wanted to channel that motivation into um, productive impact because if I'm going to leave the stage, I want to hand the baton off to some effective people. And I'd also been, I think, cloistered in my world, and I wanted to be exposed to the challenges of new thinking. And so um, the first, I had done some lecturing at a lot of different universities over the time. And I thought, well, what if I could actually put a syllabus together 
and help kids think through how do you think about big, seemingly intractable problems? How do you break them down to their constituent parts and figure out a strategy for impacting? And importantly, how do you think about your role in this as an individual? Who are you? What, what do you do well? What do you not do well? What gets you up in the morning? And 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 Ted, I think I think we both had this experience that you know realizing that in college you look out at the world. What's the what are the opportunities for me? Well, I could be a doctor, or I could be a business person, or you know I could I could uh, build milkman. And 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 when we now you know surround ourselves, if you're at, at dinner with like. 10 friends and you go around the table and realize what they're paid to do and what they do for a living you couldn't have imagined these things existed uh, when you were in college and so the other piece of the course um, that i've put together and now executed a few times and keep evolving the one bit is about how you think about big complex problems the other is how do you think about yourself and what platform is the best one for you to stand upon to, to have your influence on the world and, and think about careers in a dynamic way. Um, what is that first step that is um, uh, the right size for me? That is the right height for me? Yeah. Uh, That's the right flavor for me? Uh, that allows me to get to the second one where I've grown and you need a different thing or you're, able, you're capable of a different thing. So I bring a lot of folks in from that table of 10 friends that are at dinner to open people's eyes to the possibility of where they could stand. In the and how, how's it, how, how's it going with the students now? You've done this a few times or is really, it really, really great. Yeah. So they stay in touch. I spend, um, I make sure to be on campus, um, for a few weeks, typically the class is a month. And I am sure to be on campus and available because they're all in a moment where they're trying to figure out what they do next or where they're going. And I've got a really deep Rolodex now, right? As do you, you know, just by, you can just look at your, your previous guests on the, the podcast. And so we have this rich universe we've tapped into. And to be able to connect energetic, smart people quickly into that network to get them a, a finger hold on where they go. That's all part yeah. of it. I just think that's so exciting. Congratulations on finding that that role for you and the impact you're having on these students. And and you mentioned, I think we talked talked a couple of weeks ago that um, how this has impacted your life, your your life and Michelle's life. Your kids yeah. are off now and and you're able to go to these university towns like Arcata, California, and I guess Chapel Hill and whereas UVA um, Charlottesville. And, yeah. in Charlottesville, Virginia, and, and to dive into these communities, like you said, for two or three weeks or a month. Yeah. Uh, what, a, what, a great, what a great opportunity for you guys as a couple. It sounds like you really have found a way of, of getting some really nice balance uh, in your life as well as uh, this, this great fulfillment in the mentoring. It's, it's really worked out really well for us. And, and, and I, I just want to say one thing about the class too. Sort of, we bring it to a. I bring it to a climax at the end by walking through the whole lighting Africa story, that is um, uh, putting in play all the principles that we talk about in the class. And they come away saying, "Wait a second, ten years after you conceived of this opportunity, four hundred and twenty million people have access to modern electricity that were previously using kerosene," and they there's sort of like an aha moment. And you know, uh, there's this 
upbeat end where they see the possibilities of where this could lead for them. And, and, and that's, that's great. And, and we usually get together for a big dinner afterwards and Michelle's front and center and um, to be embraced by that community of kids uh, uh, is really energizing for both of us. That is so great. Well, what a, what a super impact you've had, Russ. Uh, and, and you will continue to have, uh, <laughs> it ain't over. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, for, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Ted, for inviting me. It's, um, it's a blast to see you as always. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.